Hi everyone, this is Lex from ASEN Company. Welcome to ASIT Podcast today, where we talk to founders about their journeys and how they've come to start their companies and some of the ups and downs of starting companies. So today we have the honor of having Ola, the CEO and co-founder of VirtualFX to join us. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm super thrilled to be part of the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks for joining. As an introduction, do you want to quickly talk about yourself? How did you come to set up VirtualFX for our audience? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I started Virtual with my co-founder, Anthony, about four and a half years ago. Before that, I actually spent about a decade in banking here in the UK. I moved here after schooling in Nigeria. So I'm originally from Nigeria. I came to the UK about 17 years ago and sort of stayed ever since. I'd always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. At some stage, some of my friends with businesses back in Africa were struggling to do cross-border payments. I did a deep dive into the problem, realized something that was significant and sort of started thinking for a means to solve for it. Obviously, being based in London, realized that this is arguably the fintech capital of the world and access to talent and resources and sort of teamed up with Tony and decided to create a fintech to to solve for it, which is what Verto is. Verto is a cross-border payment platform for businesses. Our mission is to simplify business cross-border payments in emerging markets, particularly in Africa. And the way we do that is we provide businesses with infrastructure that they can use to collect, hold, receive, and do payments in about 50 different currencies across about 190 countries. That's uh, essentially what we do at Verto. Great, fantastic. And you briefly mentioned some of the pain points. Do you want to also quickly elaborate other than converting the different currencies? Is there other pain points that you solve for your customers? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's easy in the West to gloss over some of the challenges businesses face in emerging market. If you're in the West, for example, if you need to make a cross-border transaction, there's tons of avenues for you to do that. So you can use one of your high street banks, you can use the dozen sort of fintechs out there all with sort of nice interfaces and sort of platforms. But if you're in emerging markets, it's very, very hard. Outside of traditional banks, there's just no such alternative in most of these markets. And the other sort of pain points as well, one is pricing. In a sense, cross-border payment is converting most times a local currency to a foreign one to pay someone somewhere else. And price comes into the mix where the FX rates for some of these markets are just ridiculously steep. There's also settlement time. Sometimes it takes more than two to three days for funds to settle. And there's, you know, most importantly, in some of the regions that we're very active in, there's liquidity challenges as well. Some of these markets have sort of capital controls. It's not easy to exchange and move money as seamlessly as we're used to in the West. So these are the kind of pain points and sort of challenges that businesses in emerging markets face that we're solving for at that virtual. Fantastic. And given right now, I guess you have rising interest rates across the globe. Do you see more of your business customers holding cash in US dollars? Like, I'm curious, what are you seeing on the ground in Africa? Yes. And this has been the case for a while, actually, even before interest rates started rising in the West. So just because most of these currencies are inherently volatile, by nature, they typically lose value against the US dollar consistently on an annual basis. Businesses have always felt it's much safer to hold their money in more stable currencies. And in this case, obviously, the US dollar is the reserve currency of the world. So most often than not, you actually even have businesses 
which is kind of a funny one across Africa, invoicing each other in US dollars. If I'm a South African business and I'm doing, I'm selling something to someone in Nigeria, rather than invoicing them in RAND, I'll just invoice them in US dollars because that way I protect my sort of downside from a volatility perspective. So prior to the recent sort of rate rises by the Fed, businesses in these regions have typically always sort of saved money or held funds in US dollars. That's sort of been the norm. And that's recently now been accelerated by more volatility in their currencies and obviously the increase in, in rates in the West as well. Understood. Okay, that's very interesting did i'm now going to switch focus away from virtual fx but more to you because i'm really curious to hear about your journey specifically as an immigrant founder in the uk like i'm really curious to hear you know how's your journey been yeah it's been very exciting i think it has uh, pros and cons just a bit of background essentially i initially actually came to the uk to just wanted to do a master's i came the summer prior just to check out schools and think about sort of the best course to do and then a friend of mine that i i sort of hung out with just said hey you should consider accounting because his brother was a, an accountant and it was doing reasonably well so obviously as an immigrant i just felt hey let me just do what what works right that's how i sort of came to the uk to study accounting i still don't know my debits from my credits but it was just something i just felt to do and then i sort of qualified and I got lucky. I got a job doing corporate finance at American Express and, and sort of all of that. And then the reality is that I think being an immigrant, in my case, so to me, it has a pro that you're essentially naive to things. Like I didn't understand like there was a class structure in the UK or any of that. You know, I just saw, see opportunities and I go ahead and take it, right? Because it's like there's no preset conditions. I'm sort of like open-minded to stop. So I think that's one of the benefits of being an immigrant. You see a lot of things that you're like, oh, why can't I do this? You're sort of blindly naive and you just go ahead and do it. And then the cons is that in reality, right, there's probably a limited pool of maybe people that you can sort of have initially as mentors. I mean, if you're super ambitious, you want to build a world-class business and all of that stuff, within your circle, there's just might not be that many people doing that, right? Because everyone's sort of like just happy with a decent nine to five job and all. That for me is one of the challenges where you just don't have an ecosystem to start with, where you can see sort of success and sort of be able to relate to it and strive for that as well. But then, like I said, on the flip side, you also just always start things from a blank slate and you're so naive about what you can't do that you just go off and do it, which is always good for like starting businesses and challenging the status quo. I think for me, both the pros and cons sort of work in your favor and you just have to think through how to navigate your journey personally as an immigrant in, in, in any country. Great. I mean, that sounds really fascinating. And it sounds like when you first started, the community from Nigeria is limited. But now, how has that developed for the past four and a half years? Yes, I think it's developed very well, especially when we talk about maybe the tech sort of community. There's this visa now, which is a global talent visa where anyone in technology across the world can apply to come to the UK. And there's tons of like African founders taking that up. You find a lot of African founders and people in the tech community living now in the UK. It's a much stronger community than I'd say eight, nine years ago. And that's also kind of beneficial because there's best practices being shared. There's support uh, through the ecosystem. People are sharing sort of networks and sort of doing warm intros and really just helping to solve business challenges as well. I think it's evolved very, very well over the last four and a half years. And it is actually getting a lot more useful nowadays. Almost every time I get like a LinkedIn email from someone that's just moved to the UK from Africa, is in the tech ecosystem. They just want to connect. And that's, I think, is a good thing. Definitely much better sort of network than we had 
I'd say nine, ten years ago. Fantastic. And there's, uh, I guess, in the past four and a half years, we also see more venture capital flowing into Africa, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really driven off. I mean, for example, Berto is a Y Combinator company. And I mean, I think YC, more than any kind of venture firm, has done more for the ecosystem in, in Africa by really just betting on some of the early successes and showing folks that there is definitely world-class businesses that can be built on the continent uh, using technology. And also that, I think, has led to tons of investment on the continent from the venture capital community. So that's changed quite a lot. I think it's now okay to basically say you're a company building for Africa and then people are looking at the upside as opposed to in the past where it was mostly thinking about the downsides and sort of the infrastructural challenges of the continent. That's really changed and that's very helpful for the ecosystem as well where the continent is being seen as a destination for venture capital investments, which is certainly a good thing. Yeah, and we see it too. I mean, if you look at our portfolio, I think we've mm. invested in a lot more African startups in the past couple of mm. years, I think, which is fantastic. One of the things you mentioned, which is the learnings between Africa and the UK, is there any benefits to set up a startup in the UK serving Africa? Yes. I mean, certainly we're a beneficiary of that. When we started sort of virtual effects, one of the first things we did from a strategic perspective was to basically say, what we're going to do is to build a global fintech serving Africa. Right now, we have a, a large pool of customers that are non sort of African customers. I think about 60% of our customer pool actually based in the UK, Canada, Australia, and developed market. The way we thought about it, we create a global fintech. There's best practices. For example, we're regulated in the UK by the FCA, which means that because the FCA is our primary regulator, there's so many things that we need to get right from a kind of process and compliance perspective that ultimately helps out in the long run. We actually have businesses on the continent coming to us specifically because they know that we have the right sort of compliance framework and they feel comfortable with that. I think there's certainly benefits of setting up something in the UK to service the continent. And also recently, like I mentioned, there's been an influx of talent as well. You could effectively have a UK-based business and you could even end up with an all-African staff in the UK solving for Africa and sort of that be your primary market as well. That's certainly also sort of beneficial. And then the type of talent that you would also attract is also kind of important as well. So you're able to, I mean, I think the beauty of the UK, I'll say more than say the US is that there's tons of people here that are still very close to like the continent and then the continent being Africa in this case. And there's a pool of capital and talent dedicated to Africa that you can leverage off by being in the UK. I think it has a lot going for it. And then also I think there's historical adjacencies as well. You know, lots of Commonwealth countries on the continent with UK as a heritage, the educational system and everything else is set up in a way that works. So I think it's certainly a, not a, it's a very smart move to build something in the UK servicing the African continent. Great. And I know that Virto affects you guys global or remote first from day one. How do you think about managing your teams across different countries? Like, Because I know you have people in the UK, in Africa, in India, yeah, I think very good question. We actually, we're global, but not remote first. We basically, we have teams in all these countries and it's a hybrid model. So you come into the office twice a week, at least in any of the offices that we're in, and then you can work from home on the other days. And for me as a founder, when we started, and we always had an engineering function in India, we hadn't even 
met them uh, for a while when we started. It was so important to build this uh, communication sort of portal where you're constantly almost like over communicating. So sharing your mission, your vision, what you're doing, making sure you're available for anyone to reach out to you if they have questions, constantly doing. We still do that. We have something called weekly huddles where every Wednesday morning, uh, everyone in the company for an hour signs up and basically someone in the company talks about a topic that they're subject matter experts in, a bit of knowledge sharing. And then every Monday as well, we do like weekly uh, sort of meeting with like an all hands where everyone signs up and we talk about the last week's sort of results and things that people should know about. Just constantly overly communicating. Uh, we use obviously our collaboration tools such as Slack, for example, to you know show people our chatting and setting up groups to work on projects together. I think that communication aspect is super important important and that's sort of like how we've been able to build this globally distributed workforce that I think still is all sort of homogeneous and acts as one. We also constantly talk about our values and the company culture and we share that consistently as well. And that also you see from kind of the actions we take. So it is quite tough building a globally distributed team and try to keep the culture the same, but the work is in making sure that you communicate and you're open and transparent as well. Yeah, and I can't imagine because you have the people from different parts of the world, different time zones, different cultures as well, and trying to maintain that yeah. aligned uh, culture within the company, I think it's very difficult. Do you host, say, by annually summits for the whole company? Not yet. We're actually, I think, doing one this year, like a physical summit where everyone gathers in one place at the same time over maybe a long weekend or something. What we tend to do is, for example, I could be in India or Anthony, was my co-founder, can be in India and would have a summit there where everyone goes off for the weekend, do the same in like Kenya as well, where we have a distributed team and in the UK as well, we regularly have offsites. But yes, we haven't done one yet, but the plan is to have like a global sort of summit where everyone uh, is in one place at the same time. And obviously post-COVID, that's more of a reality now. And certainly you're right as well. We actually have people from, I think, 29 different countries at Veto. It's a 100-person workforce. It's as diverse as it comes. I am very familiar with all the holidays they have in India. They have quite a few public holidays. Uh, it's kind of interesting where we need to always make sure that, hey, you know, these guys are on holidays for the next two days. We have that on the radar. And all. it's kind of interesting having a diverse mix of people. For sure. And one feedback that I can definitely give is that of all the companies that I heard that did hosted these kind of summits, they've all got fantastic feedback from their employees. So definitely, I think, worth considering. Mm, absolutely. Okay. The one quick thing that I want to also touch on is regulation or regulators. Because VirtualFX, as you said, you are authorized here and you've worked with a lot of regulators, not just in the UK, but also in Africa. Do you have any general advice to founders that also have to work with regulators? Yes. I think this is one of those topics that is super close to my heart because I think if you're venture-backed, right, by default, the aim is to grow the company as quickly as you can, gain as much market share and be a category winner in whatever space you are. That sometimes is in conflict with maybe the pace at which you, you're able to grow when you're highly regulated or in a highly regulated industry. I don't think it's a, an implicit trade-off, but I do think that as a founder, you need to sort of make the call super early. Do you want to go down the route of being regulated, which might almost like 
limit the amount of stuff that you can do, depending on your risk tolerance, quite frankly? Or do you want to take a less sort of light touch approach to, to regulation in order to scale and then you can deal with regulation later on? I think that's one of those calls that founders always typically have to make early enough in the sort of journey. I think what really defines whether you choose one path or the other is what the kind of downside is, right? In our space, we're moving money, mostly large sums of money on behalf of businesses across the world. Uh, if we do something wrong, like moving money into a sanctioned country such as North Korea, then that's going to be a big deal. You know, we might not have the business the next day, right? That for me is a much higher risk than if you're like a, I don't know, logistics company or you're a cash sharing company and you can decide, you know, I don't want to be regulated by the transport union or something. I think making that call, knowing what the downside is matters. But if you do decide to obviously go down the path of making sure that you, you dot all your I's and cross all your T's, I think there's a way to do it in a way that you are also kind of innovative. Most regulators, sometimes they have this rule that's been there for 10 years and it's just not relevant for today, right? If you're an innovative sort of fintech, for example, you need to have the right people internally that will challenge some of those sort of regulatory rules in a way that you're working with the regulator. And I find that most often than not, when you do that, most regulators are open to, to sort of your suggestions on, on how things can work. And it could take a while, but it's certainly worth engaging. My advice would be make the call super early. Do you want to go down the regulated route or do you want to just do less of that and then grow and then hopefully that would catch up? But also whatever you do, try to engage with the regulator as often as you can. And they also want to learn from fintechs as well, because there's tons of stuff that we're doing that's innovative that they might not have the rule book for, but it's it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. Would you consider, because sometimes I see this, would you consider regulation as a potential moat for a particular business? Yeah, yeah, sure. No, absolutely. I can. I think of it as a moat. That's why when we started early, we sort of said, hey, let's get regulated in the UK by this regulator called the FCA, because that way uh, we might have one up on other people that are in that space. And it actually, in our view, has actually worked out well for us because we actually have some competitors that are now looking to buy sort of UK regulated firms because they see that as a gap. I think it's certainly a moat because if everyone could get a, get a license, there will be no real reason to compete because everyone would be able to be able to compete. But having this threshold or barrier to entry really helps the moat later on. So definitely, I think of it as a moat. Certainly, something that is beneficial for you from a, a competitive standpoint, and, and it sets you apart as well. Great. Okay, that's really great. Just to confirm that point, because trying to navigate regulation, I mean, it's a huge pain point for I think. A lot of founders and but able to get across the line i think that's definitely from what i've said a big mode in developing countries yeah absolutely and i'll just maybe say one more thing on that i also think that you could also be very fast in terms of just working with a regulated partner right there are markets that where we don't have any kind of regulatory kind of rule for what we do and we've just ended up just working with a regulated partner that is like a bank, right? Because we're like, okay, well, banks have all of these things they can do. There's really nothing that tells me that Veto is able to do cross-border in this market. Well, I'm just going to partner with a bank and piggyback off their license and use that. There's that option as well. You could also just partner with someone that is already regulated rather than going down the route of getting your own sort of licensing, uh, whatever that, how long that takes. And that's kind of like how I think about it as well. It's, it's sort of the way I think to be approached. Understood. Yeah, that's a really good tip. I'm now going to shift gear and let's focus on you as a founder in particularly. What are some of the toughest 
choices that you have to make professionally? Yeah, I mean, I make I make tough professional choices every day. <laughs> I think very good question. I think it's mostly to do with people. It's such an interesting piece of founding a business that I think the people part is one of the most important things that you can either get wrong or right. In terms of making choices, it could just be who to hire in a specific function, what to do if what you thought was working isn't. Sometimes you think someone is a good fit and, and then you bring them in and that's just not the case. You need to make a call professionally. Do you part ways or do you try and see if that's something that can work out? Most of those top choices for me is people-based because it's such an important talent. It's such an important part of this journey. And then also as well, most people don't really talk about this from a startup perspective, but the reality is that everyone sort of talks about A players and all of that stuff, but it, there's just tons of startups out there just having people that are dedicated to the mission to want to work for you, especially in the early days where you don't really have much of a product market fit or you don't have, I don't know, brand investors or anything. Just in super early days, just having people that be super excited about joining you for the mission and working sort of the long hours that need to be worked. I think that's kind of super important. And in terms of making a choice, it could also be at some stage you get off, start off with, you know, people that are super dedicated, but then as you grow as a business, you know, your needs might just change and they might not be obviously the right fit as well. So making those kind of choices that, well, this person was great in the early days, but now we're so big and what we're doing is now more complex. They might not just have the skill set to, to sort of come, you know, continue on the ride and, and making that call on what to do in that stage is one of the top choices that I, I sort of tend to, to make uh, from a professional perspective. It's all, for me, it's all about the tougher ones are just the people questions. Uh, it's always, it's always a tough one for us. And you also hinted, which is the change over time. As if when yeah. you first started without product market fit, and now you have a team of 100 people. How have your role as a CEO changed over these years? It's changed quite a lot. And I was just reflecting on it as well before this podcast. I think obviously we sort of part of the YC sort of do things that don't scale kind of crew, right? In the early days, Tony and myself literally used to do everything, right? There were just two of us. I did compliance and customer success and kind of banking relationships and all of that stuff. He dealt with the product tech. I did sales. Just the amount of stuff that you have to do in the early days is just tons of work. It really does help you to really know more about your business. But then at some point when you start bringing people in, you then have to decide on when you need to let go. And it's always a tough one in terms of you brought someone in and that person is a professional in that space. When do you sort of let go and allow them to do what you brought them in to do? Or do you still keep looking over their shoulders or asking questions or you know, wanting to be part of it? So that's kind of like one thing that I've sort of like learned to sort of evolve with over time, which is letting go and letting people that you brought in actually do the work. And then also being more of, I would say, maybe a coach than someone actually practically doing stuff. That's something I'm still working on. I think right now, my aim is literally just to always have a helicopter view of the business and help steer people in the right direction because I, I want to always sort of have a bird's eye view uh, rather than being super tactical and being into the detail. But then making that trade-off, I think is one of the things that I think about every day. I think my role has just evolved from being a tactical doer to now be more of a strategic sort of helper and also knowing where we need to go as a business and setting that tone. And one of the things that I realized, and I think when you're sort of 
busy building, you almost lose track of the fact that people always still want to be inspired, just also trying to be inspirational about, hey, here's what we're going, here's why we're doing this, this is what this looks like, and here's my view on where we should be going and how we should be going about this. And constantly sort of communicating that I think is super important as well, because in the early days, and even, I'll be honest, still recently, I I get too much into the detail that I almost forget to tell people, hey, this is the big picture and and this is kind of like how we're going to get there. My role has changed over time and I think I expect it to change a lot more as well as we uh, hopefully continue to grow. But it's just constantly evolving and and learning to be a leader rather than just someone doing stuff. Yeah, and I think that really resonates because of what you just said too. I mean, someone that you hired from the beginning is a great fit at that stage. And over time, that person probably also have to develop and grow as the company grows and similar as your role as a ceo you have to change yourself to make sure that yeah you can support the like a much bigger team today great um my last question and thank you so much for my prying questions is if you were to give one piece of advice to a first-time founder or maybe give to yourself four and a half years ago what would it be Wow, that's a that's a very good question. I would say that don't be afraid to ask the tough questions, especially when you're trying to get into an industry that you don't really know much about. There's a lot of assumed knowledge out there, which quite frankly is most times false. Asking the tough questions, right, helps you. Let's say you have an idea, you want to start a business. That really helps you think through the space much better. And potentially, I mean, we're talking about startups here where you're meant to be innovative and doing something different. It also gives you that tool to be able to really create something that differentiates itself in the marketplace. And then I would also maybe kind of, if I look back, you know, four and a half years ago, I'd say betting on on those very early hires, uh, making sure you at least get your first, I would say five to 10 folks right is super important as well. Ultimately, starting a business or a startup is ultimately not just the co-founders, it also is to a certain extent the early team. And that early team is very important as well to how you succeed as a business, which is always a reason to, I would say, honestly, raise money. Because when you do raise money, it gives you that optionality of at least being able to hire people to start the business with you. And you have you guys have the comfort of knowing there's, there's cash. So salaries can get paid, raise money just to hire people within the first five to 10 hires that are the right fit for your business. It's super important. And then always ask sort of the hard questions because everyone sort of assumes things get done in a certain way. And just thinking through and asking those questions, I think is gold in terms of what you can achieve in this space. I'd say those are the two things that I'll probably, you know, tell the first time founder or tell myself I was to start this journey again. Thank you, Ola. That's really helpful. Definitely the tough questions, you know, like don't be afraid to ask them that's super helpful well thanks thanks again for taking the time to join our podcast today thanks Lex thanks for having me thank you